Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fully Expressed Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Marhefka, and I am excited to bring you the following conversations with some of the most interesting people I have ever met. When I set out to start recording the Fully Expressed Podcast, my intention was not to be the biggest, the most listened to, the most profitable podcast, but my intention was to be the most vulnerable podcast. And so as I interview our guests, my desire is to bring up stories and share experiences that they haven't shared before or they don't share regularly, to let us into their world even deeper so that we may learn and grow from their stories. And so far, we've certainly done that. Please check out all the episodes we've recorded on Spotify, iTunes, and all the other platforms. And if you love this show, please leave us a review, let me know, and also share this with a friend who you think might enjoy it. Lastly, if you want to support this show, please go over to trainingcampforthesoul.com. Training Camp for the Soul is my company where we do emotional healing, inner child work, and we teach people how to truly transform their lives. This show is completely funded by Training Camp for the Soul, so if you want to support me in the show, please go check out everything we have to offer over there. If you want to see the show notes and anything more about this podcast, go to chrismarhefka.com slash fully expressed. And then lastly, go over and follow me on the Instagram at chrismarhefka, where I share my own personal stories vulnerably, openly, and honestly. Thank you all for listening and enjoy the show. I'm here with my brother, Mike Dillard. And Mike, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. I will say that when I brought up your name to a few friends, I was like, yeah, I'm interviewing Mike Dillard in next week. The Mike Dillard. And I will say before we even start, before I even share the bio and the resume, carry yourself as such a humble individual. Mm. I met you as a person first Mm -hmm. before I knew what you did in the past, what you're doing currently and all your accolades. So I just wanted to first acknowledge you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's always interesting or surprising to me when people say stuff like that. Cause I'm like, really? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, you've built three eight figure businesses and built the first indoor hydroponic farm with Peter Diamantis. Tell us a little bit about that version of Mike Dillard. Yeah, 1.0, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I knew I wanted to become an entrepreneur. By the time I was in high school, I worked at the very first Romano's Macaroni Grill in Bernie, Texas. This is before it was bought by Brinker and turned into a chain. And that was really pivotal for me because I was mountain biking professionally then. So all of my money went into cycling and then all of my time after school went into training. So I'd ride 30 to 50 miles a day work on the weekends. And I didn't really have a social life and I missed out on a lot of that growing up. And one of the big pieces that I took away from that was that I hated that somebody else could tell me where I had to be, how long I had to be there and how much money that I made. And I would get home from bussing tables on a Saturday night at one in the morning, just drenched in sweat, smelling like food. And this is in the late nineties. So I graduated from high school in 96. So this is 94, 95, 96-ish. And there's only one thing on television at one in the morning, and that was infomercials. So I got exposed to Tony Robbins and Carlton Sheets and all of these 
opportunities or ideas that, hey, there is something else you can go pursue besides getting a job. And that was really where that motivation was instilled in me. So I knew then and there that I wanted to make enough money to where no one could tell me what to do and I could work for myself. So that's where the seed got planted. And then through college, I really tried my hand in a couple of little businesses. I got my start in network marketing because if you're a broke college student in the late 90s, that's kind of the only thing there was to do. <laughs> yeah. Selling knives and air uh-huh. purifiers and internet access and things like that. So failed miserably at that for five years. I didn't make a dollar. Very painful process. I was very shy, very introverted. The thought of selling was the most uncomfortable thing in the world to me. But the thought of having a job was even more uncomfortable. So I kept at it. Long story short, five years later, I discovered attraction marketing or direct response marketing, if you will. And I was like, hey, actually, I can sell things via the written word instead of having to go talk to somebody in person. So I spent about 18 months learning copywriting. And I would take copywriting letters, sales letters that I knew had made millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I would write those out by hand every night. I would buy every book that I could find on it. And in about a year and a half, I had really mastered the skill of salesmanship through the written word. And I used that to start building a network marketing business. And I basically went from waiting tables. This is now in my mid-20s after graduating college. I was working at a P.F. Chang's and went from waiting tables there to making my first million dollars in about 18 months after that. Once I learned how to sell and once I learned how to set up a Google AdWords campaign, I really had the two skill sets that would allow me to accomplish anything. And it really took on a life of its own that turned into a multiple eight-figure business until I was about 30. I was making millions of dollars as a single gentleman in my 20s at that point. And that was a really big moment of transformation for me too. I was very shy with women up until that point in my life, didn't know how to talk to them, didn't know how to be social. Discovered David D'Angelo. If you're familiar with his work. Yeah. And so Eben Pagan is his real name. Uh And and Eben is, Mm -hmm. became one of my best friends and his wife, Annie. I was, I was at Burning Man the day they met and that was really cool. And he completely changed my life. That was from a pivotal moment perspective, finding his work is what unlocked my self-confidence. And that was a before and after chapter in my life. Uh, Started a second company in financial education because I had made all this money. I didn't know what to do with it. That was a very successful business. We did three, almost three and a half million in revenue in our first seven days. Wow. Took on a life of its own. Ran into a con man about 18 months in that blew that business up. That was, I think, the start of this next chapter leading into to Mike 2.0 because that led to about a three-year depression and lost my house, lost my marriage, lost my business, lost really everything that I had done. Went to Tony Robbins' date with Destiny in December of 2014. So they made a movie about that. I'm in the crowd at that event. Oh, that one? At that one. Yeah. yeah that was so so <laughs> oh, that I was one. there. And that was life-changing. That kind of popped me out uh-huh. of kind of that self-blame and just being hard on myself. And that's really where I had the idea for Evergrow, which was the hydroponic system. And living in downtown Austin, I lived right across the street from the Whole Foods headquarters here. And I was into juicing. So I would go there every day and buy all these veggies. And it's, if you're juicing organic produce, it's 50 to a hundred bucks for a batch of juice. (laughs) Right. And it was really interesting because I couldn't understand why you had to pay so much money for vegetables that were not covered in poison. And I thought that that was just wrong. And at the same time, I had read one of Peter Diamandis's 
books at that time, and that was all about the decentralization of the world. And so we see Uber decentralized transportation and taxis. We saw Odesk decentralized tech work, 99designs, all of those companies, right, that we're now just take for granted these days were revolutionary at that point. And I was like, why hasn't anyone decentralized the ag industry? Because if you could, right now we're literally shipping produce on one side of the country and sending it to the other or even the other side of the world in many cases. And it increases the prices 10x. And I was like, what if we could just start and end the entire process in your living room? And I got online about every product that you could find in that space that existed at the time. This is 2014, 2015. And there are a few products, but they were a pain in the ass to use. One is called the Tower Garden. Yeah, and I had one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that was yeah. the main competitor in that space at the time. And I bought that and it worked outdoors, but it was a pain in the ass to use. You had to constantly test the pH. Mm-hmm. You had to constantly yep. try and get the nutrients into balance. And it was work. And it was not very practical to use indoors. They finally came out with like LED lights that mm-hmm. put it around it. Yep. And if you have that in your house, your entire house is lit up with this white light mm. the entire day. So... It was a good idea and a good concept, but I was like, this isn't going to catch on mainstream because it's not easy. So how do we automate this entire process? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I set out to do. I bought every book on hydroponics that I could find on Amazon, just started to educate myself in that space. I hired a really prestigious design firm in California called Whipsaw, who does a lot of the mainstream products, tech products you see that look very Mm Apple-esque. And started working with them and I was like, hey, I want to design a system that looks like a piece of art in your home that's fully automated. All you have to do is drop a seed cup in it and harvest it when it's done and that's it. So we began that process and that was one of the most fun projects and difficult projects that I had ever worked on. The challenge of designing a system that looks good in your house that could replace your grocery store run because there's little things you can buy that grow basil and mint on your kitchen counter, but that doesn't help you. Yeah. Doesn't change the world in any way. So it had to produce ideally $400 worth of organic greens per month for a 10th of that price. And so we invented this system. It would grow 36 plants at a time. And the primary constraint was that it had to fit through the standard size door frame. Yeah. So we're like, what shape is this? How big can we make it? And that was the primary constraint. And it was, uh, I'll show you a picture of it. It was absolutely amazing. It had Wi-Fi. You showed me. It looked amazing. Yeah, yeah. It has Wi-Fi that would follow the natural progression of the sun during the course of a year. Wow. It had automated pH sensors in it that would show you on an app. It had four bottles of nutrients in it that would automatically dose as it wow. needed to. <laughs> and it was a robot. Yeah. Like this thing worked on its own and it was unbelievable. It took about three years to get the prototype that... Uh, was eventually working in my house that you saw a picture of. Mm -hmm. But there was a reason why this didn't exist. Uh. (laughs) And we didn't know enough to know that we were going to run into this issue. But what ended up happening is certain plants want certain nutrients and they all give off waste, their version of urine, right? And when you have this circulating closed water system, certain plants are going to leach nutrients that other plants want and those other plants are going to suffer and then they're going to give off waste. They're going to basically poison the rest of the system. And we could try to keep compensating for this. We're like, well, maybe we put a little reverse osmosis system in it or a filtration system in it. And we also had to realize that the water sources in every municipality are different. So in Texas, in certain other regions of the country, we have very hard water. Mm -hmm. Other places have very soft water. 
those affect the plants and the machinery in different ways. It leaves calcium deposits on all of the sensors. We would have never anticipated no this way, stuff. No way, yeah. And at the end of the day, it mattered. And it's like, well, what if this thing breaks down? It's basically the size of a refrigerator. You can't send it back. So now we have to set up a nationwide support system to support all of this. And I'm funding the entire thing out of pocket. Mm. So at that point, about three years in, we hit this point where it's, I've got to either go out and raise five to 10 million to see this through to completion, probably take another two to three years or let it go and just be okay with that. And ironically, a competitor, a click and grow, that same week came out with three new systems. They went from a three plant system to, I think, 27 plants, 35 plants, and 51 plants. And they had a much better design. Yeah. Their system would sell for a third of the price of ours, required none of the support, none of the technology. They used a really, really smart design that they'd spent 10 years developing with several universities. And so I called up the founder of that company and I was like, hey, I didn't say this directly, but their system wasn't very attractive. Yeah. Ours aesthetically was really pleasing. And I wanted to see if they wanted to license our house, if you will. Mm-hmm. But they weren't open to that. But he said, hey, we've got a bridge round open if you want to invest. Mm. So I wrote them a six-figure check. And that was about five or six years ago now. And if I were to cash out now, I would recoup all of the money that I put into Evergrow. And Beautiful. they're growing by leaps and bounds and yeah. accomplishing the same mission. And I don't have to <laughs> kill myself doing that. Yeah. Um, that's a long intro to, I think, the next piece of the story that we wanted to talk about. On June 13th, 2018, I was sitting on my couch like this, playing a game on an iPad, and I felt a little click in the back of my brain right here. I was like, that's kind of weird. Didn't think much of it until that night, and I physically couldn't fall asleep. And then the next night, I physically couldn't fall asleep. During the day, I couldn't fall asleep, take a nap, and then another night. And about seven days and nights went by without a single second of sleep. And at that point, I could feel my body shutting down. I could feel... I needed to start calling my parents or making an arrangement, started calling my doctors. Nobody had really ever heard of that. I went on YouTube and Google. I couldn't find a single story of anyone going through that. Even the worst insomnia cases, nobody was describing what I was going through. And that was really scary. That went on for a year. What ended up saving my life is my doctor put me on Valium and Ambien, which Got me about 90 minutes of disassociated sleep, which it was enough to keep me going. Yeah. But it made me suicidal. And so within a couple of weeks, I was looking at the balcony in a way that I never expected to. Got off the Ambien and whatever else the other medication was, and those symptoms went away. So I was like, okay, that's the medication. And then thank God my friend Hal was going through chemotherapy at the time. He gave me a little 10 milligram THC pill, and that literally saved my life because that would allow me to get about three hours of sleep a night. And that's really where I stayed for about a year. But during that time, I went from racing Porsches at Circuit of the Americas on the weekend, living this A-type run and gun lifestyle, five or $6 million a year business, building this robot with Peter, doing all of this amazing stuff to basically laying on my couch for 12 hours a day and then laying in my bed for 12 hours a day and not trying to go crazy. So couldn't work couldn't drink anymore, couldn't eat the foods that I would normally eat to get comfort from anymore, couldn't work out, couldn't hang out with my friends. And I was basically in a state of fight or flight in extreme fear and adrenaline 24-7, seven days a week. Like It felt as if my body was being running from a tiger 
when I'm just laying still on my couch or at three in the morning in the bed and it just wouldn't stop. And that led to just a state of fear. If you remember the movie Batman Begins with Scarecrow and that spray mm-hmm. that he would spray yeah. and make yeah. people crazy. He would crazy. Yeah. That's how I felt every single day yeah. for well over a year. And the scary part was, is no one could tell me why or what was going on. So any doctor that was recommended to me, I went and saw. Any kind of therapy that was recommended to me, I went and did. During that time, I was given the opportunity to do my first MDMA therapy session by a, a very good mutual friend of ours. And had never done anything like that before. At this point, I have really zero deep personal work other than the typical Tony Robbins type stuff mm-hmm. beforehand yep. that most entrepreneurs mm-hmm. go through. Yeah. That five hours changed everything, changed my life in every way you can imagine. And I remember thinking coming out of that where it was like the past three or four months. So I did that at probably, I want to say the fourth or five month point into this. Because I remember saying that if I could do that again or just got those five hours from this, all of that suffering was worth those five hours and the lessons that I took away from that. Can you share like what was so impactful about it? I went through extreme bullying in middle school and high school, a good six years of just being traumatized on a regular basis. And I had used that as my fuel to succeed in business. Yeah, improve yourself. Yeah. And then being defrauded was another super traumatic experience in my life. And I hadn't let go or processed any of that stuff. And that MDMA session is what really brought that to light and allowed me to start to look at it from a different perspective. And I remember uh, the female and male therapist, you know, that were facilitating that night at some point were like, hey, and how about a little forgiveness for yourself? And I just like cracked because that had never even occurred to me that that was an option. So I came out of that session. I was like, holy crap, why don't people do this every single weekend? <laughs> it was such an amazing, yeah. amazing experience. And that's what has set me down the path now for almost two and a half years of doing that kind of work. But it helped a little bit with some of the symptoms, some of the really bad symptoms It helped a little bit, but the primary issues were still there. So that was disappointing. The next, I guess, really big shift is I was at our friend Aubrey's house and he was having an event, I think, with Paul Selig that night. And I didn't want to be there, but something told me I needed to go. I hadn't slept. I was kind of a walking zombie. I could barely talk. And I ran into just a random woman that I started talking to. And she introduced herself. Her name's Christina Wise, incredible friend now here in Austin. And she asked me what was going on. And I kind of told her what the symptoms I was dealing with. And she's like, holy shit, I went through the exact same thing five years ago. And you are the only other person I've ever met in the world who understands what that was like and what those experiences were. And so I just like, yeah, instant connection. And it was so important because she had made it through it and she showed me that it was possible and that she found a solution. And what it ended up being, her challenge was severe heavy metal toxicity that was so severe caused a brain injury. And so that was a really good clue. But what had healed her was ketamine IVs. Yeah. And so she's working with Dr. Womack here in Austin, called her up, signed up for some ketamine IV sessions, didn't know anything about ketamine other than it was a form of anesthesia. So I walk into (laughs) their doctor's office and I get the IV and, you know, they've got a nice dark room with a candle and a lounge chair, but it's still a medical doctor's office. There's Mm -hmm. patients in the waiting room and all of this other stuff. And and they didn't really tell me what to expect. (laughs) I just thought that this was going to make me relax and like kind of feel good. Uh 
Uh-huh. And as soon as she opened up the IV drip and I felt it, I grabbed the nurse's hand and I was like, holy shit, this is not what I was expecting because yeah. it's an instant loss of control. Uh-huh. So basically, we'll get to the cause here in a minute, but my brain was in a state of fight or flight. And uh-huh. so if you take a brain that's already lit up with fear and then introduce it to this chemical that is now going to take control away from you, that's a whole different form of trauma, Yeah, especially when you're not prepared for it. Yeah. And so that first session was the hardest thing that I had ever done because it was the darkest thing that I had ever experienced. Meaning if you have a brain that, again, is in that fear state and you take ketamine, which takes your conscious barriers and control mechanisms offline, then all of that subconscious fear comes out to the surface. Yeah. And that's all you experience. So I went through the dying process. Like for the first time that time, I saw just the most morbid death-related imagery that I'd ever experienced. And then you get stuck in a fear loop. This isn't right. This shouldn't be like this. Something must be interacting with the medication. I'm now stuck in here and I'm never going to get out. And I had to go through the mourning process of telling my son and my family goodbye. Mm. And you can't move. And basically you're just trapped in your own mind's worst nightmare. And you don't know how much time is going by or if you're ever going to get out of this. So uh, at one point I finally eked out the words help. And the nurse picked up on that and she stopped the drip. And this is probably about 45 minutes into the hour long session. And I came out of it and I just burst into tears. And I was like, that was the most traumatic experience that I've ever gone through. And the funny part is they tell you you can't drive. And so I had to take an Uber there. Uh And I don't have a girlfriend at this point. I don't have anyone in my life that really knows what I'm going through. And so I have to take an Uber home after this experience through the city 15 minutes after coming out of it. Very abrasive on the system to like go back into that reality. Yeah, I actually had him take me to my ex-wife's house because all I wanted to do was go hug my son, who was probably six years, seven years old at the time because I just said goodbye to him in that experience. And now I got to go see him again. And so grabbed him and again, kind of just started crying for a good while, went home. And the worst part was is that it took Christina nine sessions before she could get back to a point of sleep again. And the thought of doing that eight more times was brutal. But at the same time, I was like, if this is what is required to get back to my old life, then I'll do that. And so I went back for two sessions a week until I did nine. And it was really interesting because it went through a very specific story arc. The second session was just as bad and just as traumatic. The third session, she put the needle in and my body went into just a full-on trauma release for the first time. And I'd never experienced that before. But like my legs just started shaking, my arms and body just started shaking for about 20 minutes and she hadn't even started the medicine yet. She asked me, hey, do you really want to do this? And I'm just sitting there in tears and I'm like, have to, you know, turn it on and then went in for another one. And that session was a different one. That was a little bit lighter. It wasn't as dark or scary. And I came out of that. I was like, okay, that's a step in the right direction. The four, five and six were much more positive is all visions of rebirth and tribe and friendships and family. Very, very positive experience. And then seven, eight, nine were kind of like, Hey, we're done here. There's really nothing else to do. And it was just kind of boring, but I took a lot of lessons from every single one of those sessions. Each session had a primary theme that came out of it. And if you've done ketamine, you know that it's very symbolic in nature. It's not like MDMA where it's, you just get clear instructions. You have to kind of interpret what you're seeing. And I interpreted stress, living a life of constant stress and adrenaline was basically going to kill me at some point. 
So a year into this, still still struggling, still not getting any better. I finally meet up with a friend, my friend JP Newman in town, and we have lunch. And he said, why don't you go talk to Dr. Ann Shippey? Have you been tested for mold yet? And I was like, no, but I'll go do it. So I set an appointment with her, get tested for mold. And that was it. On a scale of the mycotoxin test, uh, zero to five is normal. Anything above five is in the red and it's toxic and you need to go address it. The test stopped at 50 and my result was 21,000. <laughs> Holy so, shit. And a mycotoxin is a neurotoxin. Yeah. So I was breathing in mold from my hydroponic system yeah. all day, 24 hours a day for over a year that was literally eating my brain and releasing a neurotoxin that was like that scarecrow mist right from yeah. the movie that was making me see fear everywhere. And when I say fear, I mean, I would walk downtown in Austin and just get this wave of adrenaline go through my body that a building was about to topple on, on top of me, completely irrational, but that's the state that my brain was in. And that was the beginning of the healing process. We discovered what the antagonist was. We started a massive detox protocol with all kinds of binders and an anti-inflammatory diet. Had to move, obviously, and get out of that environment as fast as possible. And as soon as I started to do that, within three to four months, I started to see progress and it would start to get manageable. I remember writing a friend a birthday note at one point and my motor function had gotten so bad I couldn't even physically write letters anymore. That's how far the deterioration had been. So that was the beginning of my 2.0, which was really interesting because during that time, my identity was completely destroyed. I couldn't use my most valuable asset, which was my brain. I couldn't work on my business. I couldn't make money. I couldn't create. And those were all the things that constructed my identity for the previous 20 years. And I got to a point where I had had to basically liquidate all of my savings just to keep the bills paid. I got down to 5,000 bucks. And this is after making $60 million during my career. I got down to my last five grand. And that was just two and a half years ago. And that was an interesting experience because it gave me the realization that my identity was tied to the amount of money I made. And all of a sudden, now that I wasn't able to make money or didn't have any, my sense of self-worth was zero. And I was like, what do I have to offer anybody at this point? What is the point of me being here? And it led kind of down that path again. But starting to do the type of work that you do, more psychedelic work, more plant medicine, Wachuma, nine ketamine sessions, three or four MDMA sessions during that time, it allowed me to let go of all of those stories and that identity and really start to build a new one over from scratch, which has been a process. Yeah. It's been about a year and a half, a good year and a half process to start to rebuild a new identity and to figure out what I want to do when this next stage in my life. And it slowly started, yeah, I would say over the last year during Corona, I met my fiance, Michelle. I'd say we met in September of 2019. And that was a really pivotal moment was meeting her. And now I finally had the ability to have a healthy relationship from all the previous work that had come from this. And then Corona hit and we go into lockdown two or three months later in in our first three months of dating, move into a house together with our kids. We're now homeschooling. House ends up having mold in it. We end up moving six times during 2020. So about every two months, we lived in an extended stay Hilton for two months, homeschooling two kids in a giant Labrador retriever <laughs> and still not having clarity on what am I supposed to do with my life now? Because everything that I was good at and that I did before had zero appeal to me. Internet marketing, entrepreneurship, I could just really care less about at that point. Yeah. So that's been the last 
couple of years in that process. So, wow. I imagine you just put a lot of things in perspective for a lot of people. The biggest lesson that I took from that and that I'd like to share with folks is what it's like to go with forced change. And so a lot of us pursue change by choice and it's on our terms. And there are sometimes circumstances happen that force you to change, which are not in your terms. The mold brain injury was that for me. One day I was me, the next day I was not me. And Corona was like that for a lot of people. One day the world is as you know it, and the next day it's not. And we're very fortunate that at least us, we lived in Texas. So we had a fairly mild version of lockdowns and the trauma that people in California, New York went through and can still continue to go through to this day. But it's how do you deal with forced change? And I think that's really kind of the biggest lesson that I took from that and that I can share with folks today, because everybody is going through that right now. Every single person on the planet is going through that right now. So yeah. what advice do you give for people in that forced change stage? Yeah, I think the first is surrender. Pain comes and anger comes from unmet expectations. And if you keep wanting the world to go back to the way that it was, you're going to keep torturing yourself and continue to suffer. And so that I think is number one. Number two is resetting your thermostat as far as what's actually important. For me going through the health stuff, the only thing that was important is that everybody I cared about was alive. And I didn't care about the business stuff anymore or any of those things. And that was a huge shift for me, especially having an identity that was centered around those things. So being able to do the things that you need to do to take care of your body. I used <laughs> queso and margaritas and <laughs> adrenaline and caffeine, caffeine yeah. as my buffers to suppress all of my shit yeah. in my life and childhood. And I going through this was forced to get rid of all of those. I couldn't yeah. have any of them anymore. And I could say as an introvert, again, I probably until this happened, didn't go through a single social interaction at any time without alcohol at some point, because that's what allowed me to feel comfortable in a social setting. And now I was here forced to recalibrate that. And it's become a superpower. It's unbelievable when you can walk into any setting at any time and be completely comfortable with yourself and not feel any anxiety whatsoever. So it really just depends on how you look at it. And this is one of those cliched sayings, but it is absolutely true. It's is this happening to you or for you. And the choice of that is yours. And unfortunately, I would say that 90% of society thinks that these things are happening to them instead of for them, where Corona could have been and continue to be the single biggest blessing in your life because it could have forced you to make changes with your health. It could have forced you to spend more quality time with your kids or your spouse or your family. It could have forced you to start a business and become an entrepreneur and pursue your passion that you'd always put on the back burner because you, you know, had to have your normal career or your job. And I think some people took advantage of it in that way, if you did. The majority of them, unfortunately, didn't have the tools or the awareness to do that. And they went into the bottle and drugs and television and anything they could to numb the pain of what they were going through. So for me, it's just kind of having an awareness that you even have a choice. You have a choice to go through this process and to turn it into something positive. So yeah, I would say that's the biggest takeaway. And you're not going to be able to do that alone. You're going to have to have guides and help and coaches I would be dead today without the people who showed up in my life to help me. And I think that that's an actually a very important lesson. Two days ago, I got a reminder on my phone that my friend Mark, who was a good friend of mine through our entrepreneur days, died of cancer three years ago. 
that was the three-year anniversary. It was two days ago. And I'll never forget it because the last time I saw him, he looked quite thin and kind of unusually thin. But I was like, oh, he's just doing keto or dropping yeah. weight or something like that because he'd always been a super healthy guy. And he never told me that he had cancer until it was beyond obvious and too late to ask for help. And here's a guy who had access to the world and he never told anyone about it because he didn't, I guess, want to appear weak or needy or burden to others or, or burden to others. And fuck, that sucks. That really sucks because yeah. that's all ego-based and all of us would have done anything to have helped yeah. him in any way. Yeah. And so when I was going through this, I accepted help from anyone and everyone who was willing to give it. And I would encourage everybody else that if you're in any kind of pain to simply ask for help and to not be afraid to do that because it is the path to recovery. You can't do it on your own because if you could, if you had the tools, you'd already do it you're, Yeah, and you don't. And when you're in it, it's almost impossible. Imagine being out of it. It's like you're, you're in the ocean drowning. Yep. Mm -hmm. You're not going to survive that unless somebody throws you a lifeline. Yeah. So, yeah. And it, everyone's version of that drowning in the ocean could be their own situation. Yep. And, and the volume doesn't matter. It's not objective. But if you feel like you're drowning, that's the cue. Yeah. It doesn't matter what objectively, because some people would hear that. Because this was my story is like, oh, I'm not as bad as that. And I would find examples of like, oh, they have it much worse than mm. me or they're suffering more. And that kept me in the loop of serving others rather mm. than asking for the, mm. the support and the service. And so, but I felt like I was drowning. Yeah. 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 And so it's not about the objective measure. What is your um, perspective on what is needed? I mean, you clearly had force change. The universe dropped it on you and it was like, <laughs> yeah, we're going to do something here. What is your perspective on what is needed for people to wake up to even that idea of choice? I think it starts with awareness. So you have to become aware that that is even an option, that there are people who are willing to help you and who have the ability to help you. And for me, that comes down to who are you paying attention to? What information are you consuming? If you're still plugged into mainstream media, God help you. And it's fascinating. We moved into a neighborhood here in Lakeway almost a year ago now. So in the middle of 2020, and I'd say half the street had recently moved in. It's all brand new neighborhood from California. And for God, the first three to four or five months, they were legit still wearing masks up and down the street. And I remember Halloween, they all had tables out in front with gloves and disinfectant and they were 20 feet back away. And they're like, take one thing and leave. And that would just became, made it super apparent to me as far as the different realities that people were living in. And slowly, those people have come around and they've acclimated to other information that we have here in Texas, at least. But yeah, plugging into people who are sharing a positive message is step number one. Step number two is to, I think there's a lot of people who don't think that they're worth the help. They don't think they deserve it. There's a self-punishment or self-loathing component to it. I would have put myself in that category a few years ago as well. And just to forgive yourself enough to know that you are worth receiving help from others, I think is a really big piece of the puzzle. And that in itself, I didn't know how to do that. I wasn't taught that. And so I needed someone to show me how to do that. The concept of self-love to me was, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wasn't even aware of it. And that was the single biggest lesson that I took out of all of this was reaching a point of self-love and forgiveness was the victory out of this whole scenario.
And I think that's the ultimate win for anyone in this life. If you can achieve that, you've won in my book. There is really nothing else you can do other than to maybe go help others achieve that as well. That's the victory in the life experience that we have. I don't think there's a bigger prize. So if you haven't achieved that point yet, and how do you know if you've achieved that? Well, for me, are you still carrying around anger for yourself or regret for anywhere else? Do you still beat yourself up for stuff that you've done in the past or ruminate on mistakes that you've made? Do you still need alcohol or drugs of any kind to simply feel normal or okay to be comfortable in your own presence by yourself or around other people? Those are all signs that you haven't gotten to that point yet because when you do, you're at peace basically all the time with yourself and with the world and there's nothing else that you need from anybody to just be happy. Happy, yeah. It's like it's an internally generated thing and most of the people that I experience in the world outside of doing this work think that it's external, something that comes to you or you gain by having something outside of self. Yeah, and that's a great point. We talk about this in money, which is kind of what we what we teach now is we focus on people's mental and emotional relationship around money. But one of the things that we teach is that you cannot fix an internal problem with an external solution. And we all, I use dieting as an example a lot where people want to go lose weight. Well, they go look for an external solution in the form of diet pills or an exercise program or whatever. And what ends up happening is basically the decisions that you make at any given point in life are, are all subconscious. Your neurochemistry your serotonin, your dopamine, your oxytocin, your cortisol, your endorphins generate an emotion in you or a feeling in your body of stress or anxiety or joy or happiness. And let's just take when you get stressed or anxious, which everybody has been you know, in a dominant state for the last year and a half, that's going to release cortisol in your body. Your body's remedy or your body's purpose of releasing cortisol is to motivate you to get out of that situation or to go do something else because You're in a situation it doesn't like, and it needs to make you feel uncomfortable so that you will go remove yourself from that situation or rid yourself of the source. So cortisol can be a great motivational tool. In order to counter cortisol, your body releases dopamine or serotonin to neutralize that. And we get dopamine or serotonin typically from the foods we eat, things we drink, or the stuff that we buy. And in the United States or Western culture specifically, we are trained to do that from the moment we understand English and can watch a television, we are trained to go buy things to make ourselves feel better or to eat things to make ourselves better, drink a beer to go make ourselves feel better. And so when you feel stressed or anxious, I guarantee you're doing one, two, or all three of those things at any given time. And you, before you know it, could have a pint of ice cream in your hand or a beer or a glass of wine or be on Amazon and buying something. And so those are, again, external solutions to an internal problem and those don't work. And then, so once you start to feel these emotions caused by cortisol, the decision you make around that is determined by your subconscious program. An example of this is I could give, take a hundred people and I could give each of them a hundred thousand dollars. And I could say, you have to invest this in the stock market over the next 12 months. And we're going to see who wins. So everybody has the same resources, the same tools and the same mechanism in order to build wealth, and you are going to end up with 100 different results. And those different results are produced because even though there's ideally one logical best path to get the best result, you're going to get 100 different results because of 100 different subconscious programs running that are interpreting what to do with that money. And it's the same thing in every aspect of life. And so again, when you feel those emotions and then you get motivated to go do something, 
What is your subconscious program having you do? Is it, again, what buffering mechanism are you going to choose? And this is a process that people are unaware of. I would say 95, 99% of the population completely unaware of it. And as long as you're unaware of it, you're a slave to that and you're never going to be able to stop that. And that's why when you go into the dieting world, typically people give up within two, three, four, five, six weeks. And that's because they're trying to solve or achieve this goal using willpower, which is from the conscious mind. And that willpower is going up against a subconscious program, which is the default and requires zero effort or energy, where this other conscious path requires 100% of energy and discipline and attention. And this eventually wears out and gets tired. And then Mm -hmm. it goes back to the default. And that's why people have so many challenges making any kind of lasting change in their life is because they have a subconscious program that's running that they are completely unaware of. And until they change that, yeah. they're stuck. Yeah. And that's where psychedelics come in. Yeah. It's because they allow you to see and become aware of these subconscious programs for the first time in your life. And you're like, oh, <laughs> holy shit. Yeah. And once you see it, then you start the process of retraining that mm-hmm. and reprogramming that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like people will say to me like, oh, I failed at that. And like, no, you didn't fail. You were actually playing a losing game. Like you can't win at that game, the conscious mind dominating the unconscious. It's not possible. And that's the world that most people are living in to try to solve their challenges. And their to, life. you know, Tony Robbins is great for what he's trying to do because he is attempting to make lasting change with people through the conscious mind. Yep. But he's doing it with the best tools that he can without that meaning five days of sleep deprivation. Yeah. And Tons and tons of neuro-linguistic programming, which is one of the tools that is effective to mm-hmm. reprogram the mind, changing your body's emotional state in response to stressors. And so he does the best that anyone could possibly do without the use of these other tools. But using the other tools is so much faster and easier yeah. and more effective. So Yeah, and there's is definitely ways to go into the unconscious without the psychedelics. Psychedelics are just quick, easy, yeah. and they work for yeah. everyone. Maybe not everyone, but yeah. So what's now for you? We talked a lot about your journey. What's all this change manifesting into now? You know, it took about a year of thinking about that. There's a lot of ideas that I had that would make sense from a brain or logic standpoint, meaning I have the tools and skills to go make, build that and make that successful, but it never really felt right. And what I realized is the biggest successes I've ever had in my life, it's felt right from a brain perspective and a heart perspective. And when both of those say yes, then that's when you have the magic pixie dust. Unfortunately, a lot of people will just pursue opportunities or ideas that make sense from a mental perspective because they see somebody else having success with that. And that's why it typically doesn't work out, but that's okay. That's part of the process. What really finally clicked about six months ago for myself and for Michelle is that when during 2020, when I was still struggling to walk upstairs and I might be in bed for two weeks with adrenal fatigue and I might get a burst of a good couple of days when I could get work done. It's like, I don't know how long this is going to take to recover from. And I never want to be in this position again because the thing that made the health challenge so hard, 10 times harder than what it needed to be was the money stress of not being able to work, not being able to produce income. And the big light bulb for me was my businesses were always successful. So that was my source of financial security. I never imagined that I wouldn't be able to work. And so that was a huge light bulb moment where it's like, okay, we need to really focus on generating passive investment income so that we never have to worry about this or go through this again. And that became kind of priority number one. 
And what's interesting is that all of the personal therapy work that I'd spent the last couple of years doing allowed me to see my relationship subconsciously and emotionally with money and my identity and how that was tied to money, how these hormones tie in to your relationship with money is I could look at money from completely different contexts than I still have never seen anywhere else. And that's basically applying neurochemistry and what I've learned from the subconscious mind to people's relationship with money. And so the goal is to create passive investment income so that you never have to work again unless you want to, but you have complete financial security. Our goal is to have $100,000 a month in passive investment income in the next 24 months. And we're about 30% of the way there. Wow. And Incredible. that from going five grand in the bank account to that in two years, doing well, right? Yeah. <laughs> Objectively. <laughs> yeah. 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 But a lot of that was the fact that I had to go through that loss. Yeah to have the learning and the awareness of, oh, this is what's actually happening because I was stuck in what we call a make it, spend it, risk it cycle. So I'd make a bunch of money and then I would spend it or I would risk it and then I'd go away and I'd have to do this all over again. And that was going on for 15 years. And I never knew why, because when you're in that, you always assume that you are making the best decision that you know how to make in order for your own prosperity or success. And it's only this event that took me out of it far enough to be able to see what was happening and for me, that was make money. And then the internal story from my childhood of being bullied was not good enough. So I have to prove that I am, which was then buy a Ferrari. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or Show whatever. everyone. <laughs> it's to have an external yeah. way to demonstrate that you were good enough. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then an addiction to adrenaline, because when you're being threatened on a physical daily basis, your body gets used to being in a state of adrenaline every day. And so the best way to get adrenaline when you have money is to go put it all on red on a business or a buddy startup or what your own startup like Evergrow, whatever it may be. And then you make it back again. And so that's the cortisol, the dopamine cycle happening as well. And so this experience gave me the opportunity to become aware of that pattern and then to rewire my neurology and neurochemistry around that. And so basically what I did is I taught myself how to get dopamine and serotonin by saving and investing money instead of spending it where 99% of the population gets those hormones that your brain is going to force you to get by spending money. And that's why you're stuck in this cycle that you're never get out of. And you're never going to build lifelong wealth. If you make a lot of money, you're going to lose it just like a lottery winner or a football player or an actor or whatever. You're going to get those neurochemicals. Then you're going to run through a subconscious program of not good enough. And you're going to, you know, just <laughs> blows up again. Right? So this all just kind of came in over the last year and a half and we turned that into a course and that's really what we teach now. She's an incredibly talented coach who's certified in hypnotherapy and NLP and a couple of other different modalities now. But our goal is to wake people up to their relationship with money, especially right now today with the uncertainty that we have from an economic perspective that I believe is going to continue for at least five to 10 more years is how can we help people create financial security in their life by generating passive investment income and making them aware of these patterns in their life. And so far we've had about 1100 people go through it so far. And the testimonials that we have just from the awareness phase of this is just boom, because these are usually smart people. Most of them are all successful entrepreneurs and they go through that same, make it, spend it, risk it cycle. It's just very, very common for the entrepreneur personality type. And once they see it, you can't forget it. And now you're like, okay. And then we teach them how to rewire their neurochemistry. Very basic techniques, right? Whenever you are 
feeling that cortisol and that anxious desire to go get your favorite buffering mechanism. Okay, how do we interrupt that pattern? It's just a breathing technique, right? Let's take six deep breaths, let it out slowly, get you out of sympathetic into parasympathetic and just interrupt that pattern. And then now you're out of that automatic program. You're back in your conscious mind where you can then choose to make a different decision. It's one of the very basic things we teach people how to do. Another thing is future pacing. It's like, man, you really want to go buy that new Apple laptop or that new purse or heels or car or whatever it is that you want. That's all a neurochemistry component that's creating this motivation in you internally. And then you're going to find a way mentally to go justify making that purchase. And at the end of the day, your brain gets what it wants, which is dopamine and serotonin and your bank account goes down. And so we'll teach people how to future pace, go through that buying process, unpackage it, experience the feelings and emotions that you're going to get from that, and then go forward a month into the future. Do you feel that desire or has it kind of lost its luster at that point? And now it's just another piece of hardware on your desk. And so we can have people go through that process and give their brain what it wanted from it in the first place, again, without dropping three, four grand on a new laptop. And slowly but surely, people start to change their habits and their behaviors when it comes to money. And then after that, we teach them how to invest. Yeah. Because in my second company, which was about financial education, it was all about the strategy. Yeah. But if I give you a strategy and you haven't fixed your neurochemistry and your subconscious programs, you're still going to F it up. That, that's the conscious mind trying to help battle the unconscious. Right yes. There. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I went through that mistake where I was like, I'm going to go read all the Robert Kiyosaki books and yep. make all these investments. And I, they still ended up not working out. And I was back in that same cycle again. This is why lottery winners go through the experience they have. This is why I think it's 70% of NFL players file bankruptcy within two years of leaving the league. It's like all the Hollywood actors that file for bankruptcy after making hundreds of millions of dollars. It's they haven't addressed parts one or part two. And so they ultimately will repeat that pattern until they do. It's amazing. And you explain the process so well. And it's actually is quite simple. That pattern interrupt and the reprogram, it is quite simple. It's just, what do you believe? Are people not aware of this process yet? No one. This is what's exciting for us is that I have read all of the books and subscribed to all of the investing newsletters over the last 10 years, and nobody has put this together yet. Nobody's figured this part of the puzzle out. And so that's what's exciting for me is that I have figured the internal solution out to the external problem of money. And so we're going to be putting that in a book here in the next few months. And I'm super excited about it because this is a genuine shift in people's relationship with money and the financial education landscape that has really never been seen before. So I'm really excited about the impact that we're going to get to make about putting this info out in the world. Mm. Do you have people at this stage in your life, maybe from version 1.0, because you're an open book Mm -hmm. from what I see. I mean, you have people from that version of your life not liking what you're doing? If they do, they don't. They don't share, no. They don't tell me. It's been interesting the last three years. I have some very close friends here in Austin that I care about deeply that when you go through a spiritual awakening, quote unquote, like this, you become a different person. And it gets harder to have things in common with that group at this point. And, you know, we try to nudge them and say, hey, this has changed our life. We'd love to have you experience this as well. But there's... If there's resistance there, there's resistance there. There's not much you can do about it. 
So the good news is that there's a lot of people out there who are in my audience that have seen the changes and the shifts in me and the videos, the podcasts that I've done on this topic that are eager to jump in with two feet and to do the work yeah, and who are doing the work and who are having their lives changed in the process. So yeah, there's been some sadness around that piece of it, but it is what it is. And that's the part of uh, growth. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So can people that are listening, can they take part in the course that you're offering, the program? Yeah. Yeah. It's at richereveryday.com. Richereveryday.com. And that's the goal is to help people get a little bit richer every single day. And yeah, so that's been an amazing experience. And I think this is something we'll focus on for the next foreseeable couple of years. But the other interesting piece that is very motivating to me that I'm being very called to is what's happening in the world today. That is very, very, very concerning. And I've seen this trend coming for 10 years. I based my second company on what is happening today 10 years ago. I was just a little bit ahead of the timeline. But that's something that I'm very, very outspoken about. If you follow me on Instagram, I talk about what's happening in the world today on a daily basis, because to me, that is the most important thing by far, because if we don't resolve that, then none of this matters. matters. And so really inspiring people to speak up about freedom and their rights is my first priority at this point. Yeah. I love that. You're doing an event locally here in Austin. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Yeah. I'm going to be there. Awesome. Joining. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It looks like a great event. What is in your view, the challenge that the average person is facing that keeps them from that state of freedom that we're talking about? First is it's unawareness. You can't fix something that you're not aware of. And so until you have something that knocks you out of your state, when I say that, I get a visualization of the Dr. Strange Marvel movie where the female monk pushes Dr. Strange out of his body for the first time in the monastery. And, oh, there's a general awareness that you have a spirit now, right? (laughs) So until you have an awareness of what's going on in your life, you're not going to be motivated to do it. But if you do, then it's just to start looking for the answers and be proactive. And you have to ask yourself, my friend Kamal Ravikant has a little phenomenal life-changing book called How to Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It. And he wrote this many years ago after going through a very hard time in his life. But that little book, I would say start there because that's going to set you down the path of self-love. And if you get set down that path and you're going to start opening up your awareness to people who can help, solutions you can pursue, different work that you can go find, podcasts like this that you can listen to. And as soon as you start bringing in that kind of energy and information into your consciousness, you start to see more, right? And then this path becomes much easier and the solutions become much easier. But at that point, the work begins. You can get a remarkable amount achieved in a five-hour MDMA session. But (laughs) I think that's what cracks the exterior the shell or the armor, if you will. And at that point, there really is not no going back for most folks once you have that level of self-awareness after an experience like that. So, yeah. And I imagine people listening to the show are not at that state. They're, they're already exploring alternative views and yeah. different perspectives. I'd imagine so as well. But there's a lot of people that aren't, and there's a lot of people that aren't, and they're in a silo of their own. It's an echo chamber. And is there any way to get through to people that are sitting in that echo chamber? Because I've seen so many loving, good intention people really speaking out and asking people, begging people to step out of their cave. Mm. 
I don't think that happens until the motivation is great enough. There's no reason to change until the motivation is great enough and pain is the most effective motivator. And so the more pain that they experience, the greater the motivation will get. For me, it took life taking me out completely, enormous amount of pain. If not, I would have continued on my way, continued using alcohol as my primary tool and caffeine. I probably would have been dead yeah. with a heart attack heart on a attack. racetrack by now. Hmm. can't remember who said it, what research was in this field, but they're saying that the heart attack was the man's way to escape that life, the, mm. to escape the cortisol-driven life. It was like mm. that was the mechanism that we developed. Mm. I can't remember what work that was, but mm. yeah, it's why it's so common. Yeah. When you're still using those motivators that drove you as a 20-year-old man mm-hmm. at 40, yeah. the body cannot mm-hmm. physically keep up with that weight activity. System out. Yeah. Yeah, it just breaks the machine. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, as we're wrapping up, before I ask this, I ask one last question Mm. and I'll give you a little head start uh, about vulnerability. What Mm. does vulnerability mean to you? And that's really the purpose of this show to have honest conversations, to share openly. I get the pleasure of knowing people like yourself personally and a lot of great individuals here in Austin. And I also know that a lot of people don't have that outlet to Mm. different perspectives Mm -hmm. and different ways of thinking. And so that's why I wanted to share these conversations very vulnerably to bring them from my inner circle to just at least one degree or a few degrees out. And so what does it mean to be vulnerable, speak vulnerable? To me, it's just an expression of self-love because once you reach that state, you don't care what other people think about you. I don't mind talking about all of this stuff because frankly, I don't care what you think about me. (laughs) (laughs) Because when you love yourself, you don't need an external validation or approval or any of that from anybody anymore. So for me, there is no such thing as vulnerability anymore. Vulnerability is when you're, vulnerability assumes fear around being seen. And if you're afraid of being seen, you don't love yourself because you're judging yourself. You're not good enough for yourself or others. And once you get rid of that, then vulnerability is not vulnerable anymore. It's just who you are. You literally just put words to... I experience when people say to me like, oh, you share so vulnerably. I'm like, I don't feel that way at all. Yeah. Like, no, it's just, it's not. That's just, it's just who I am. Exactly. Yeah. 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 doesn't feel strange. Yeah. It's only it's feels strange when there's fear yeah. behind it. And if there's fear behind it, that's rooted in personal shame. And if there's shame there, then there's not self-love. Mm. There's judgment and fear. So beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to share? Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, man. Thanks, Thanks for, for being here. Doing this work and help making the impact that you're making because the more of us that do this, I can't tell you, I, you know, I had a podcast for seven years and that was the single biggest tool for impact that I've ever done throughout my 15 years in business was that show, the emails and the messages that I get where an episode changed the course of somebody's life. There's thousands of those. And so this work literally changes the world. So thank you. I received that. Yeah. This call for this podcast was knocking for a long time before I finally answered the call. Yeah. And I'm really glad I did it. So thank you, Mike, for being on and giving your time today. Where can people find you? At Real Mike Dillard on Instagram or richerveryday.com. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you. Thank you all for listening and watching. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Fully Expressed Podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed this vulnerable conversation with our guest. And if you enjoy this show, please leave us a review, share it with a friend, 
and let me know if this has impacted your life in any way. You can message me directly on Instagram at Chris Marhefka. And also, if you want to support this show, the show is fully funded by my company, Training Camp for the Soul. Go over and check out trainingcampforthesoul.com where you can find out about our online programs, in-person retreats, and lots of free offerings where we're helping people to transform their lives radically and permanently. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate you so much for making this dream a reality.